And so good morning. Good morning, Windsor Road. And it's so good to worship with my church family here on this first day of the week. And if this is your first Sunday here at uh, the church, just want to extend a welcome to you and uh, just a delight to worship with you here on uh, this Father's Day. I'm going to be out in the uh, uh, through those glass doors and to the right, it's a place called the Fireside Room. Would love a little bit of FaceTime with you and pray with you and just hear your story and meet you and uh, would really appreciate that, uh, that privilege. Uh, we, 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 get, we get really between 5 to 12 first-time guests uh, every Sunday here, and so I don't get a chance to meet everyone, but I'd love to meet you in the Fireside Room and, and uh, I pray with you here. So if you are here uh, for the first time or you're feeling new here, we're in a current teaching series on emotions, on emotions. So let's just get right into our um, uh, teaching time for today with a question. I have a question, and here it is. Do you ever feel bad for feeling bad? <laughs> you know, you find yourself in a kind of a blue funk and... Uh, and then, then on top of that, you feel guilty for it, right? Or maybe you get angry. Maybe it's not a funk. Maybe you, you struggle with anger. And you get angry, and you say, I'm not going to get angry anymore. But then you do get angry, and then you get angry because you got angry. That's me. Or, you're, or anxiety. You get anxious because you feel anxious. And so, and so then we end up going down even you know, further dark places like, you know, I don't have enough faith, I'm not trusting in God enough, I'm not a good Christian, and, and some of us um, are familiar with what's called the prosperity gospel, which is no gospel at all, where the depth of one's faith is marked by physical health and financial wealth, and, and so we end up... <laughs> So we end up turning to like legalism and law. If I only had enough faith, if I only fasted enough, if I only prayed, my, uh, uh, prayed enough, if I only read my Bible enough, enough, do more, try harder. And church, there's something not right with our understanding of emotions if the gospel becomes an occasion for more shame. Did not Jesus say, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So the word gospel means good news. And Jesus did not come to make your load heavier. His yoke, he says, is easy, and his burden is light. So let the chains fall off. Only he can break them. Amen. And so negative emotions that come our way have value in that they burst our illusion of a problem-free world. And they propel us into the tragic realization that we are not home yet. And so to cry out hard, disruptive feelings, that's, that's no sign of spiritual immaturity or sin or lack of faith. I say it is faith. 
because we're crying out to the only one who can break those chains. And thus, those feelings, as hard and uncomfortable and painful and as disruptive as they are, they are evidence that we are responding to the world that is. In faith that God will act. Difficult emotions open the door to difficult questions like, so what is the purpose of this pain? Difficult emotions give us the opportunity not just to flee from them, but to get curious about them. What is this all about? Can life make sense in its brokenness? Can I find God in an uncomfortable place? Dan Allender has written a very helpful book called, uh, it's on emotions, it's called Cry of the Heart. He says emotions are a theological statement. So when we feel emotions, you know, we're making a statement. How, how we think about emotions is a statement about who we believe God is. And they're not necessarily a problem to fix, but they're a cry to be heard. And emotions expose what we're doing with the sorrows of life. Emotions reveal our heart's longing for God. And so we said last week that the emotional life is a gift from God to move us to Christ. The emotional life is a gift from God to move us to Christ. Emote, emovere from the Latin, to move out, to move toward Christ, to deepen our relationship with Christ and one another. And so let me just get to the big idea today before I announce our text. Here it is. At times, Christ will call us to follow him into emotionally hard places. At times, Christ will call us to follow him into emotionally hard places, emotional pain, the emotional pain of others. And that's what I want us to see in our passage of Scripture this morning. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn to the New Testament book of John, chapter 11, You'll find that on page 897 of your church Bibles. No slides today. We're going old school. John 11, 17 through 37 is this uh, very emotionally intense passage concerning the death and raising of Jesus' friend Lazarus. And, and in these verses, we, we see the heart of God, the heart of Christ. And that's really what makes this so important, especially on Father's Day, because these verses help us, you know, what image or character trait of God are we passing to our children and grandchildren? So for good or for ill, our children's picture or image of God is largely shaped by the relationship with their earthly father. And the fact of the matter is, we are not machines that can be repaired through a series of steps. We are relational beings transformed by the mystery of love. 
So follow along with me as I read John eleven seventeen to 37. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved. Look at the footnote. It says indignant. I'll talk about that in a moment. He was indignant in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? This is God's word. So can you feel the emotional freight in these verses? John tells of three siblings very close to Jesus, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. This is the Mary who in Luke 10 sat at Jesus' feet while her frustrated sister Martha was frantically juggling the hospitality tasks. And this is the Mary who in, we'll see in John 12 will, will anoint Christ's feet with expensive oil. Their brother Lazarus had become very, very sick. And verse 3 says that when they sent for Jesus, they didn't even give Lazarus' name. They just said, Lord, the one whom you love is ill. So Jesus will know who they mean. And the assumption is, well, he'll come. And so when Christ heard of it, verse 4 leads you to believe, well, that's just what's going to happen. He's going to come. This won't end in death, verse 4. And then in verses 5 and 6, you know, the Apostle John reiterates Christ's concern when he notes Jesus' love for Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And then the next phrase is, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, so you just are the reader and you just, you just know what the very next sentence is going to be. 
And he immediately cleared his calendar and raced to Bethany to be with them. But that's not what happened. That's not what it says. Verse 6. He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then he said to his disciples, verse 7, okay, now let's go. And they try to argue with him about that because it was near Jerusalem. They're trying to kill you and you want to go back again. And verse 11 Jesus says, well, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, and I'm going to go awaken him. Well, why would you want to wake him up if he's asleep? He's going to get better. No, fellas, verse 14, he's dead. Okay, <laughs> right? And then verse 15, and for your sake I am, what's that say? Glad. What? Glad, glad. What, the, like, did Jesus skip? Pastoral Ministry Hospital Visitation 101 class? For your sake, I'm glad that I was not there. So, so note the purpose for the delay. That he would die. Now, I, don't you find that strange? Jesus allows something bad to happen, what we shall see for very good reasons, but you know, they don't know that yet. And then, so when they arrived... Lazarus had been in the tomb four days. In verse 21, Martha cries, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. In verses 25 and 26, Jesus declares to her, his identity, I am the resurrection and the life. And then Mary meets with Jesus and she too cries, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And look in verse 33, three verbs highlight Christ's emotion. Verse 33 says, Christ was deeply moved. Was deeply moved. We saw in the footnote, indignant. Indignant. So, so was deeply moved is kind of a pleasant way of saying, but actually the word is he's indignant, he's angry. That's... A word picture of the snorting of an animal was indignant. And then his spirit agitated, greatly internal agitation. So was indignant, passive voice, internally agitated, active voice. And then look at verse 35. Literally, Jesus burst into tears. Oh, Now this time out. What do we learn about the emotional life of Christ here? Well, in verse 15, glad. Verse 33, indignation and agitation. And verse 35, sobbing. <laughs> Which is it? All of it. All of it. And what do we learn about emotions from Christ? Here it is. Emotions never march in single file. Do they? Now, they don't march in single file. They blitz. They blitz. I mean, Jesus loves Mary and Martha. He grieves their loss. He hates sin and death. He feels anger. He told his disciples how the miracle would bless their faith. Made them feel glad. 
His emotions were mixed. Why? Because this world is mixed. Life in this world means the delightful glories of God's handiwork. And life in this world also means getting the muck of sin and suffering splattered all over them. We have, we have no godly choice but to both mourn and rejoice. As some of us are here today, and every Father's Day or Mother's Day, some of us are here rejoicing. Some of us are here, are, it's just a hard day. Let's just acknowledge that. It's both. Mixed emotions are because of a mixed world. And they blitz us. And, and this, I mean, and this text has all the ingredients that we use to want to suppress emotions. Right? Because Jesus delays, so Lazarus will die. Well, God has good purposes behind that. And so we know there's going to be a happy ending with intense joy and celebration. And God's purposes are going to prevail. And Christ is going to be glorified. Lazarus will live. Resurrection's five minutes away. And yet, in the face of all of that, verse 35, Jesus bursts into tears. What, what is that? Did, did, like, did our Lord lose his nerve? Is that it? Does, does he need a reminder of who he is, Jesus? Now, I don't know if you've forgotten this, but you are the son of God. No, he doesn't need that. <laughs> Weeping is no weakness of resolve. There's no structural deficiency in Christ. And, and, and don't miss this. This is, this is not just his humanity peeking through. We look at these verses and it's easy to say, well, this is Jesus being human. Well, of course it's him being human, but it's not just him being human. Here's what's going on. Christ comes face to face with the ugliness of sin and death, and he can see it on his friends' faces and hear it in their cries and in the reality of our sinful, broken, fallen world, stares at him in the form of a cold, dark tomb. Listen. Every cemetery reminds us that this world is not as it should be. And Jesus feels this to the point of uncontrollable grief. I, I like how one commentary put it. Christ did not only see what Mary and Martha saw, he saw what his heavenly father saw. Spiritual death and the effects of sin. The, the tomb of Lazarus was not the only place of death. The whole world was a tomb in waiting. And so, with that understanding, knowing God's will actually intensifies the grief. Because the rightness of what's right and the goodness of what's good intensifies the badness of what's bad and it makes the ugliness of sin even uglier. And let me be clear about this word sin. When I use the sin in this, the word sin in this context, sin is more than an act of disobedience against God. When I'm talking about sin here, sin is an enemy state. Sin is an insubordinate realm. Sin is a hostile regime opposed to the purposes of God. And sin's end is death. 
So on display in John 11 is more than Jesus' humanity. Of course, those were physical tears, yes. And here we witness the God who weeps with indignation and agitation over what sin has done to his creation. Throughout the Bible, we see God's emotional involvement with his creation, with his people. He's, he's passionately um, concerned about his people Israel. He, he emotionally warns Israel over her sin. He yearns for Israel's repentance. He laments Israel's destruction. He loves his people and abhors the sin that wrecks their lives. Uh, write down, if you would, Psalm 78, verses 65 and 66. Psalm 78, 65 and 66. I, I've, you know, I've read through the Psalms, and, but this just, wow, I, like I hadn't realized this before. Then the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine. And he put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. What's that say? Well, that psalmist likens God to a drunk who has just awakened from a hangover and he's unleashing his anger. I thought, huh, I, I, I never really read that before. I mean, if, if, if God likened to a drunk just awakened with a hangover, unleashing anger, if... if if either of my boys had talked about God like that, I'd send them to their room. I can't send the psalmist to his room. It's in the psalms. He's ready to act on behalf of his people. He's emotionally involved. And if you've ever seen a father sobbing over the casket of his son, a son taken by, by drugs, drunk driving, or just recklessness. If you, if, if you have felt that, then you've witnessed the God who feels that way about us. Christ is not just intellectually committed to the destruction of sin and our rescue. He's deeply, intensely, emotionally involved. He is Emmanuel, God with us, love with us. And in John chapter 11, Jesus' expression of divinity tells us something about ourselves because we've been made in the image of God. And Christ created us to emotionally express his character. And so the apostle Paul touches on this in Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Those are emotional terms. There are two sides of one coin, and to grow in one is to grow in the other. And so expressing emotional pain is a part of our image-bearing nature, like God. We are to be moved by the brokenness of sin. And if we ignore the darkness, then what's the glory about? If our sin and darkness and death, if that's no big deal, then what have we been saved from? So then to embrace brokenness is to choose to enter the unpleasant places we'd rather not be. And so at times, 
Christ calls us to enter the pain of others. And that's going to mean feeling bad. Isaiah speaks of the Messiah as a man of sorrows. If we are to follow the man of sorrows, should we expect any less? You know, don't you, that Christ could have approached Lazarus' tomb differently. And his divine glory could have been displayed through absolute serenity. You remember when the disciples freaked out in the boat, on the storm, on the Sea of Galilee, and what was Jesus doing? You know, they were freaking out. He was sawn logs. They were just sleeping away, you know. Christ could have approached the tomb that way. Or how about in Matthew chapter 8 concerning the centurion whose servant Jesus healed remotely. So Jesus could have just simply said, Lazarus, come forth from wherever he was. No trip was even necessary. Instead, he chose emotional pain before that cold stone tomb. Who does that? Who does that? Who chooses pain when other options exist? Love does. That's who. Love chooses to move into the life of another and be with them in their pain. So I'm thinking of that father whose daughter struggles with epilepsy, who experiences horrific seizures, and her father is in agony as he watches his daughter experience the pain of these seizures, and he's angry. He says, you have no idea what it's like to see your daughter lying on the floor, twitching like she had a thousand volts of electricity going through her body, and to watch her eyes roll back in her head, and watch her lips turn blue, and to know there is nothing you can do to stop it. And you beg God to stop it, and nothing happens. And that father's anguish is so overwhelming, all he can do is, is beat his fist against the bedside. Now, how are you going to respond to that man? What are you going to do? Are you going to fix that for him? I dare you. You can't. You shouldn't. So what can you do? What can you say? Well, you might try saying nothing. And just being there. And if you say anything at all, it might just be a whisper. And it might be something like this. You know, I just cannot imagine, and I do not know what it's like to be you right now. But I'll tell you what I see. I see a daughter so fortunate to have a dad who chooses to be in that room and who decides to feel all those horrible things and who elects being there even when the overwhelming experience is helplessness. And I thank God that she doesn't have a dad who seeks escape through alcohol or television or busyness or just tunes her out and hopes for the best. I thank God for a dad who suffers with her. And because of that father... 
we can know our heavenly Father better because we see a picture of God's own anguish, his own agony, which we see in Christ as he wrestles with our own brokenness. We see and feel his intense love for us, his own desire to rescue us. For you do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but you have one who was tempted, tested in every way, and yet was without sin. He is your king. He knows. He feels. And that, friends, is a picture of the gospel. There's a little girl that we've been praying for here at Windsor Road. Her name is Kala. And she's hospitalized. She's very sick. We've been praying for healing. We've been praying that God would preserve her life. Kala and her family used to attend here when they lived in Champaign. Her father, Benjamin, is a pastor in the Louisville area. And I want you to listen to something that Kala's mother, Crystal, wrote. If you know Kala, you can only imagine the elation in our little girl when she was asked to be flower girl for her friend Kelsey's wedding. She's been fitted for her dress and had her bridal party manicure scheduled and attended the shower and been downright giddy about the whole thing. But as we all know now, life has taken a crazy turn. Kelsey and Matt's beautiful wedding was scheduled for Saturday, but these amazing people with their amazing heart and amazing love, these two came up to see us in the hospital on Friday and they got married. And Calla was their flower girl. And Benjamin was their minister. What kind of lavish grace still allows for these beautiful moments in the middle of such intense suffering? What kind of God prompts this level of love for others? Over and over and over and over, I am overwhelmed with the outpouring of grace on our family, on our sweet Kala. I am continually reminded that only Jesus himself can comfort and hold us this close. Only the one true God of all can orchestrate beauty in this dark and broken world. He does it all the time. He does it through this army of prayer warriors, through cards and gifts and presents and visits and hugs and songs and messages and countless other ways. Each of you all have come alongside us. And he does it through beautiful, tearful Friday morning weddings. Now here's the deal. And there's really no other way to, to say it. If you flee that level of emotional pain, you will very well miss God's lavish grace that can only be found in such mysterious, difficult, hard places. Like the cross, this place of brutality, this place of grace, this place of love, this place of suffering. This place where our 
resurrection was secured because of the death of our king. The king who said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Amen. Amen.